Hello and welcome to the BL podcast. I am Nivedita Varadarajan. Today I have with me Santosh Singh, partner and manager IntelliCap, and we are here to discuss some of the strategies that goes into green financing and actually to understand what some of these terminologies are because we know some of them like green bonds are quite familiar but nowadays there are some cool new interesting things that the world is doing to finance green project. Let's understand from Santosh what they are. Uh, hello Santosh, thanks for joining me today in this podcast. Thank you Nivedita. We have several measures to finance green projects. So some of them are very traditional like going to a bank, but not all banks and not all countries can fund these projects through bank loans only. Uh, most countries are taking certain fiscal policy measures to help companies to adapt to green energy and technology. So there are several popular ones. Can you tell us a little about some of them and then we can go into each topic? Yeah, Nudita, I think uh, let me kind of give you the broader context uh, for this. So if you see, India is committed to decarbonization and we have announced our net zero goals. And there are many estimates that how much capital is required to achieve this decarbonization. Okay, mm-hmm. We are talking about something in the range of 7 trillion to 12 trillion by 2050. Just these numbers, and, and it's not about the numbers being accurate, it's about the range being accurate. And, and this yeah. range is such a large range that we need to find ways to finance our decarbonization. Right, as you were talking about that green financing, etc. Mm. But the kind of volume and the quantum you are talking about is very, very huge. How to kind of achieve these goals? And and before I jump into India specific, just to give you some broad, you know, perspective that how the world is looking at decarbonization. And then mm. there are only two, three ways that you can think of for a country. You have domestic sources and you have international sources. Right, mm. that's the pool of capital that you have. In the domestic yeah. sources, you have typically public finance. You have private finance, and you have several other multilateral banks that are providing that uh, capital, right? So say that in the international sources, you are looking at primarily at international climate finance, the money that has been committed by several of the developed countries as their contribution to addressing the climate uh, challenge. Uh, So climate finance flows through multiple channels, and that's a source of uh, capital for many of the countries to go on to the decarbonization journey. Apart from that, you also look at the foreign direct investment in many many of the sectors which are critical for decarbonization. The larger point I'm making that the quantum of money that is required will need all sources, all mechanism to be leveraged to achieve that. You know, just the number you can sense that for an economy like India, if the cost of decarbonization goes, you know, say beyond seven or eight trillion, we are looking at a very big challenge. Hope that gives you some clarity about that that what's the challenge and how we are looking at. Now coming to green financing, and I'll come to those jargons and, and those kind of words, but mm-hmm. technically any intervention, any intervention that has climate outcome, especially uh, the mitigation or adaptation outcomes. If you are financing uh, a project, an activity uh, that results into uh, lowering of the emissions or helping you adapt better to the climate change mm-hmm. uh, is part of the you know green financing mandate. Right. Mm-hmm. There are several technical discussions, but that's the larger kind of uh, guiding principle. So, yeah, the big picture is that big anything picture. that finances a green activity is considered green financing. Yes. And, and the green activities have defined, you know, have been defined in many ways. And yeah. there are some nuances to that. There are principles that qualify a particular activity as green or not. But yes. Now, when you say green financing, it's a subset of financing and it has all the traits of a typical financing that you look at that. So mm-hmm. uh, you need 
equity, you need debt, you need risk mitigation instrument, you need a different kind of uh, you know instrument that would allow the finance to be effective, right? Yeah. In India, I think we have a huge, huge track record in scaling up solar sector. Mm. And India has produced a lot of you know best practices or case studies that the world is kind of uh, you know adopting. You know, if you look at the solar sector journey. In the last 10-15 years, we have done a phenomenal job. And this has been achieved with innovation in policy, innovation in the way we finance, innovation in the technology, you know, all put together. So India has got many of the sectors which are part of the green financing, very well defined, very well uh, understood by the financiers and money is flowing there quite easily. The challenge is that to achieve the decarbonization, you need many of such kind of sectors to go through the path of the solar that we talk about. When I say the path of solar, that means rapidly scaling up and achieving the goals. Unfortunately, not all sectors that are needed for decarbonization have the attractiveness of solar, the economics of solar, and uh, to say the least understanding among the financial institution that is needed to finance that. Mm-hmm. So those sectors going to be you know, critical for achieving the uh, the goal of decarbonization. Okay, so decarbonization talks about how we can remove uh, the excess uh, emissions from from our economy, right? So it, not all renewables is an easy way. Electrification is an easy way for uh, decarbonizing, but it's not the only industry, as you said. So how are some of the other industries coping with it? So so you know in the top level, if you see that power and energy is one of the major sectors that contribute to emissions because uh, these are not only the industry in itself, they are also the critical need for many other industries. Yeah. Right? So you power industries. But, you know, if you look at the manufacturing sector hmm. is another big contributor. Automobile is another big contributor, right? Yeah. So within manufacturing, you have steel, cement. Now, when we talk about decarbonization, I think just to give a very simple explanation of decarbonization it is in different contexts so sometimes we talk about decarbonization as a specific number that we want to reduce our emission by 30 percent 40 percent by a particular timeline yes. or sometimes we take a goal like net zero when mm. we talk about net zero let me just give you one or two line explanation and then the decarbonization would be easy to kind of understand mm, yeah, when we talk please. about net zero we are talking about reducing our emissions from whatever activity we are doing to an extent that is possible so take an example that if you are driving a car, car has some emission that comes out. Mm. But if you drive an electric car, you are reducing that emission substantially, but it is still not reaching the zero level. Second is that you were, say, emitting 10 million tons of carbon dioxide every year. Now you have come to 2 million tons of carbon dioxide every year because you have reduced uh, 8 million tons. Now to achieve net zero, you have to find a way that this 2 million can also be either removed right, or captured. Removing and capturing is the second part of the net zero goal. But the first part is that each industry that is contributing to the emission can we minimize the emission from that industry. We know that we can reduce our emission if we switch to electric cars. At the same time, you know, we also understand that this technology is costly and not everyone is willing to buy this because the costs are very high. Then you start thinking of that, how we can finance this transition. In this transition play, you are basically looking at subsidizing the industry so that the cost of these uh, things can go down and providing incentive to the consumers. So the decarbonization is a way 
that most of the industries are looking at minimizing their emission. I won't say that they are going to completely minimize, uh, completely achieve zero emission, but they will reduce to the extent possible. Achieving zero is actually not possible, right? Because if you're going, there's no way to make an output without having some wastage or some emission. So to have zero, to have a factory which has zero emissions is actually quite an impossible task, at least right now. And, and, and that's why this whole mechanism of uh, carbon market or offset or activities that can capture the carbon are critical. So say that you are going to emit certain amount of carbon irrespective of whatever you do from a particular mm-hmm. industry. Mm-hmm. Then we need to find another activity that is capturing that carbon. So, yeah. so say that there are certain natural activities that are responsible for capturing carbon. If we get a balance that activities are only emitting carbon to the level that the activities that can sequester carbon are capable of sequestering. So if we produce emissions which are within the Earth's limit to process carbon, to remove carbon, then we will achieve net zero. Yeah. But once we go beyond that limit, then we are not able to achieve that net zero. So that's the whole philosophy of net zero. But to answer your question, most of the industries would not be able to achieve net zero by just their own efforts of reducing the emissions, they have to do certain activities to remove the residual emissions. So that's where things like offsets or carbon taxes or a trading system comes in. So let's talk some about some of them. Let's talk about offsets. So supposing a mining company is like, I have to take down a, a forest to access the minerals underneath, or the coal underneath. They offset it by building, uh, by growing up a forest in another area. So that's an offset. Am I right in my understanding? Yeah, yeah. So it's a very simple way of saying that I'm doing some activity and I have some carbon footprint. I'm now going to either do another activity mm-hmm. or finance an activity, which would provide me, you know, which will give me the result of carbon being removed. Okay, let's put it mm-hmm. this way. So yeah. the calculation would be that from activity A, I have produced 2 million emissions. Mm-hmm. From activity B, I have reduced 2 million of emissions. So I am net zero. So in some cases, what happens that you can do the activity yourself, but not all the industries, or not all the kind of uh, businesses have this opportunity to do that activity of carbon removal or carbon sequestration on their mm-hmm. own. Uh, it might be due to the technology not being available, due to the other resources that is needed to do the activity not being available. Then what they do that they start incentivizing those entrepreneurs or those businesses which can do that. And that results into what we are now calling as a carbon market. Okay. These these are actually called emission trading systems, right? So how do these things actually work? It's been in the Europe for quite a while. So yeah. how exactly do these systems work? It's a very complicated system, isn't it? <laughs> so Dureta, it's, it's a slightly complicated question to answer, but I'll try my best to simplify. But, uh, you know, the basic concept is not that complicated. And right now there are more than 25 regional or uh, country level emission trading systems uh, operational. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the most known ones are the European trading systems. Then we have Korea, then we have China, then California. Yeah. There are several ones. In yeah. fact, India is also, to some extent, has a quasi-emission trading system. I'll come back to that later. So typically in the ETS, what you do that, once a country decides to minimize its uh, you know, carbon emission, they start identifying certain industries, certain activities that are contributing to that emission. 
and they put a goal that we will try to put a cap on this industry this particular group of industries or sector that if they are emitting say 100 million tons of carbon every year will put a cap that they should not emit more than 80 million tons of carbon every year right so mm-hmm. 20% will reduce now as you see the 20% of reduction then the regulatory bodies who are in charge of this kind of regulations they start taking measures to achieve this and one mm-hmm. major is that you create a ets and bring certain industries into that system and industries are given a target that you cannot emit more than this if you emit more than this then either you have to pay a penalty or you have to buy permit or quota from the other industry that has not completely consumed that so yeah. this is the basic concept of uh, etss there are different variations but that's how it work it's a easy way it's a easy way to put a cap on certain industries and start achieving efficiency at a in a larger level would a flip side of this be companies and industries and sectors emit as much as they want to without trying to bring down their emissions but they can just trade it they can just buy from other sectors so that that's that's slightly a misconception because one of the key thing is that uh, how robust are the cap so if the caps are very relaxed then yes everybody can achieve the target then if the caps are stringent then everybody is able to not meet the targets so they can't buy It so that's not... a little difficulty there so if the cap is too high if the bar is set too high and if the companies can't reach the emission standard right now then the system won't work well the trading won't happen right yes and that's why that's why these etss are designed with a very you know uh, careful consideration mm-hmm. that whether i am putting a target for a particular industry is it logical okay right? so so it is not that easy to gain the key is that having a very right set of targets the caps and the regulations right if you put a very lax target then everybody achieve the goals and nobody kind of trade so you are saying that your ets is not effective the idea of ets is that to push the industry towards the goal of emission reduction which is possible but not happening because of certain reasons okay so you said india is a little, has a quasi ets system can you explain what that means yes so india you know uh, bureau of energy efficiency Mm-hmm. has been running a number of schemes which incentivizes the industry to achieve uh, energy efficiency so if you see that we don't call it a carbon emission but we are saying that you should become more energy efficient and okay. you can have the target about energy efficiency not about carbon emission but energy efficiency so an example would be that to produce a particular unit you cannot consume more than this much of energy okay. so this scheme has been very successful from so the largest scheme in uh uh you know uh, existence called pat is called perform achieve and trade and certain sectors are already part of uh, this this works like an ets the only difference is that that it is uh, not trading a carbon mm-hmm. emission uh, you know uh, units but trading energy efficiency units okay so let's talk a little bit about this carbon markets how is this different from this ets markets that uh, we are talking about so carbon market is the larger bucket within okay. the carbon market you can have multiple sub segments ets mm-hmm. is part of the carbon market so carbon market can be divided into two categories one is a compliance carbon market and the second is voluntary carbon market the voluntary carbon market is primarily the carbon market where corporates incentivize activities 
to meet their voluntary net zero goals. The compliance carbon market is backed by the regulations and acts. So ETS is one form of the compliance carbon market. Carbon credit is the larger bucket. Voluntary carbon market, ETSs, these are all the uh, uh, other uh, you know subcategories of that. I also want to talk a little bit about carbon taxes, something which we don't have right now in India, but we have, we pay cess on our uh, petrol and our diesel, but they're not exclusively carbon ta- uh, taxes. Is that a system that India should consider? So, so there's a larger system. So let me just go to the largest bucket of this okay. for carbon pricing. The biggest bucket is carbon pricing. Within carbon pricing, you see carbon taxes, ETSAs, carbon market, etc., etc. Right. Yeah. Basically, you want to price the carbon so that emission has a monetary value, either yeah. positive or negative. So, if you reduce, you get positive value. If you uh, contribute, you get a uh, you know penalty. Carbon pricing mechanism can manifest into an ETS, can manifest into a carbon tax, can manifest into several other mechanisms. And and as I said, that it's not that Indian government is not putting uh, taxes and things. There are several activities that are promoted and several activities that are discouraged. India government has been following the positive carbon pricing route. You know, just to say that carbon taxes need to be put in the, you know, uh, carbon pricing uh, means only carbon taxes and we should go that route. It's not that simple decision. It Mm -hmm. requires a fair bit of planning that how you want to kind of achieve that. How important are government regulations to enforce this? How strong is the regulation system in India? If you look at the regulatory environment, as I mm. told that there are several measures where we are incentivizing the climate-friendly sectors. When you incentivize the climate-friendly sector, automatically you are, uh, you know, kind of uh, not focusing on incentivizing the non-climate uh, sector focus. So, so uh, to put that, India is taking measures to, uh, you know, remove the old vehicles from the road. Right. That's that's uh, one example of. You know, regulatory measure, we are saying that we will not allow the polluting vehicles to be on the road. That, that's the enforcement of that. At the same time, you are saying that I will subsidize the, uh, you know, green vehicles. So you penalize the polluting one, you incentivize the clean ones. At the same time, you are saying that I will finance the clean activity at the cheaper cost of capital. Indian government, I think the fundamental principles are very strong. They have the right clarity. I think uh, considering that India is also a growing economy. And mm-hmm. we have many development goals to achieve. So a decision that can we switch completely to renewable is not possible. Yeah. So India is taking a very cautious approach, but I think the the framework of Exxon is right. They mm-hmm. are focusing on promoting activities that are friendly. They are focusing on putting negative incentive on the activities that are uh, not so green. Uh, the last question for this first part is this. So India, uh, many countries in the world are using instruments like green bonds to finance uh, their activities uh, to switch to a cleaner um, energy transition system. India also started it only recently. Are there something that the rest of the world is doing that India needs to take in? We did it recently. Uh, As I told that these nomenclatures and labeling are new, but the activities are old. So I can give an example. India had this National Clean Energy Fund, which Mm. is, is almost like a decade old. It's not that India you know, is not adopting that. India has been doing very proactively. The solar sector uh, success story is a good you know, example of that. India has also been using green bonds. India has been using different kind of uh, incentive to different sectors. Having said that, the kind of challenge we are facing of mobilizing 7 to $12 trillion 
yeah. to meet our goals right we can talk about that we need to do this at a much larger scale yeah of course yeah so this is the question of a scale not whether we we are doing this or not we are doing most of the things that are the best practices globally it is that that these activities uh, need to be done at a far far you know bigger scale to achieve the outcome that we are looking at so the point i was trying to make india and developing countries as a whole emerging markets as a whole even though the need is there financing is bit of a problem for them so suppose take the green uh, green bond market the whole world green energy uh, green bond market is 2.5 trillion dollars all the emerging markets put together just form 2% of the uh, bonds of the total green social and sustainability bonds that's about 74 billion dollars that's a huge gap right between what the emerging countries are doing and what the developed countries are doing yeah yeah so you are right on the numbers but that's i said that if you look at the numbers that you're talking about it is also that majority of the countries that you are talking about are the one where the financial system uh, exists right so yeah. you need to look at the how these numbers have been arrived you know most of the bonds uh, that you're talking about have been you know primarily being consumed in the developed economies and they have the right kind of ecosystem place so the numbers i am not looking at that point of view. the point you were saying that there are a lot of activities being done in europe on the financing the green transition and they they have the resources there is a big big you know push that is now resulting into other countries following the challenge is that many of these european countries are far ahead of the curve when it comes to Uh, the development agenda so as so i'll give an example of that uh, many of the developed countries are moving away from coal which most of the world including india can't afford to do right now a- a- absolutely because their coal plants are almost you know at the end of their life they cannot say that i'm you know moving away from that coal plant and setting up another uh, vehicle so that's why you see many of these countries are trying to assess the situation on the basis of the different constraint they have do we have that much capital can we switch to the green uh, without compromising the energy the development goals that we have for uh, our uh, citizens so th- if if i have to kind of highlight the thing that we can follow from uh, some of the european countries uh, one is that uh, they are now looking at the, say the ets is one example that happened in europe and we are now looking at so this is one example you know a couple of dedicated funds have been set up uh, say there is a fund called the modernization fund mm-hmm. you know it's a big fund in eu that basically support the industries to achieve the decarbonization goals so these kind of funds are now being discussed and they would start coming to uh, you know uh, extend in some uh, say couple of years mm-hmm. when people are thinking of can i have a dedicated pool of capital that would incentivize those who are willing to take green action we had a huge fund for solar now can we have the fund for decarbonization of say steel decarbonization of uh, uh, automobile etc etc so these are the things we are learning but having said that the green bonds are also very proactively now being uh, chased in india and you will see the numbers changing in next two years green bond market is a nascent market we just released our sovereign bonds this year earlier this yeah. year jan so as we go ho- hopefully the market will mature yeah awareness among the financial institutions and the uh, industry about these new 
financing instrument or the clean financing, green financing is gradually uh, getting, you know, uh, at the right uh, level. People are saying that, hey, I'm in the climate business, I'm in the energy business. Is there a possibility of uh, this business getting uh, development finance, green finance, climate finance? And once they know that there's a possibility, they start working on that. Are these types of these green finance cheaper than traditional finances or how do they work? So, so green finance is surely, uh, you know, uh, attractive uh, than the normal finance. That's the whole idea. Uh, how much attractive depends on a different kind of uh, uh, parameters. Mm-hmm. So green finance is surely cheaper than the normal finance that you're looking at. Okay, so in part two of this conversation, I like to uh, talk a little bit about how climate risks can affect our financial institutions. So when I was doing research on this topic, I came across an RBI report in May in which they talk about how the financial institutions will have to pay attention to the transition risk of uh, giving loans to people and to firms who are affected by climate uh, and weather-related events. Can this translate to a macro macro level financial instability? So it's good that you asked the question. I think in 2019, Intellicap did a report to mm-hmm. understand how financial institutions are factoring in the climate risk in their portfolio. Uh, the outcome was that many of institutions uh, were not aware of the ways that they can factor in while they had the clarity about that there is going to be some impact uh, mm-hmm. on them due to the climate change. But the details were missing. But I think uh, RBI uh, proactively is taking measure to highlight that. So, so the question you were saying that you know the financial, uh, you know the systematic instability uh, due to this. Hmm. Uh, yes, theoretically, very much. Uh, if you see that the way the climate change impact the institutions, uh, the institution can get direct losses because uh, the climate change has uh, affected certain kind of portfolios. The second one is that there would be reduced opportunity for lending to certain sector because of the climate change, because yeah. the risk and extreme weather events would make those activities unviable. So the need for capital will go down, right? Mm-hmm. It will also increase the cost of borrowing because if you are financing a particular kind of sector that is seen prone to climate extreme events, then you know you will start charging a high uh, premium for that. You mm-hmm. will start asking more. Now, these are the kind of... Uh, same traits that result into the financial instability. You hmm. suffer huge losses, you, uh, uh, you know, uh, re- lending opportunities get reduced. So theoretically, yes, it can happen. Most cities in India have a huge uh, climate risk involved. Supposing a, a cyclone can wipe out most of the businesses in Chennai within a, within a couple of days, or a flood can. We've seen incidences in the past where this has happened. So isn't that a factor that financial institutions have to take into consideration? Are they taking uh, it? That, that's exactly what I'm saying. So, for example, since you give the example of Chennai, right? So, yeah. say that you have financed a housing loan in an area in Chennai, a very posh locality, uh, before the flood happened. And after the flood that happened, the price of that property has gone down because people are saying that this is an area which is flood prone. In the bank's book, this property which the bank has loaned, say that this was a three crore property. But now the market price of that property has come down to one crore because mm-hmm. people are saying, I don't want to buy because, you know, if uh, extreme rain happens, there's the water logging here. What has happened that the bank portfolio has got impacted. If the default happens, bank does not have the enough collateral to cover that. So, so banks were earlier not doing this kind of assessment. So banks are now discussing about that. But I would say that we have still a long way to go. And that's why the RBI is giving the guidance. But uh, I don't think it has gone to a mainstream level as of now. 
so because it's not mainstream is there a is the, is the banks are financial institutions under greater risk we are seeing some events that is coming and then we realize that uh, most of the banks in india are not unduly exposed to one or two sectors they yeah. have very, very decent exposure right mm. and also the risk that we have seen uh, so far have not been of that extent to mm. really cause havoc with the financial systems mm. but it's not that uh, it has not happened and if if you remember you know uh, in 2017 uh, there was a hurricane called hurricane harvey uh, yeah. in us it caused 125 billion damage and it led to higher prices for the food services all of this recently in 2019 australia saw the huge wildfires yeah. that caused 30 billion dollar damage so we are seeing these examples where massive damage is being caused uh, and and financial institutions are kind of uh, factoring that in that how to deal with that but uh, i would say that uh, considering the larger picture the kind of exposure the financial institution have uh, they are at risk but i won't say that at a such a risk that you know they are rushing to find the solution for this uh, msmes and smaller firms are more at risk uh, to yes. these kind of events compared to bigger companies fair to say Ab- absolutely the question is that yes they are going to be impacted uh, but it is not that the government agencies and the financial institutions are unaware of that okay so there are measures being taken but you are right we are all kind of hoping that we don't see an extreme event of that kind of quantum or that kind of impact that uh, we are not able to you know bail out uh, these or provide cushion to these kind of institution because they are very critical for uh, our growth even if it might not affect the big banks and the big financial uh, microfinance institutions it can certainly affect the smaller ones right so if a, a microfinance institution is predominantly based in a certain region and that region is facing a climatic event and uh, and issues because of it those smaller banks would be affected yes if you are a financial institution only lending to a particular geography or a particular sector and that particular geography and sector goes through the climate crisis then you have a very high risk of going bankrupt and is the government and policy makers looking at issues like this yes that's why you saw the rbi uh, taking a note of it right and mm-hmm. and then there are many instruments being planned that can be have a uh, what we call a climate disaster insurance so now mm-hmm. the insurance products are coming that you can uh, buy climate disaster insurance that could provide some uh, security against this finally my last question to you is about the indian companies themselves are mm-hmm. companies taking esg uh, seriously whether indian companies are taking esg seriously or not but indian government is surely taking esg very seriously uh, you see this uh, brsr framework that came yeah that is mandating 1000 listed companies to report on many of the parameters that we call cumulatively esg parameters so so indian government is seriously you know looking at uh, esg as one of the drivers the second one is that i talked about indian companies indian companies have been you know uh, looking at esg Uh, but from different lenses so indian companies have started to look at the esg as their uh, clients their stakeholder are enforcing them that you should follow the esg norms so they see as a compliance they have to do that because that's a uh, uh, that's demanded by that yeah. the second one the second one the second force that is uh, emerging is that most of the indian companies have started to realize that if we invest into esg it is not only a compliance but it also a good 
risk mitigation tool mm-hmm. as well as a tool that can create value for them but i think if i have to take a if you have to do a reflection on the status right now mm-hmm. it is the first that is driving more that the stakeholders demand about the esg adherence esg focus is making companies uh, start uh, the journey of esg most of the companies once they start the journey of esg they realize that uh, investing into esg is not only a compliance it is also a good risk mitigation instrument and can create value for them so many companies are going in that direction as well yeah thank you so much for joining me today and answering all my all of my questions thank you so much for joining us listeners until the next time this is nivedita signing off